Ahoy! It's your boy. And today is Sunday, October 22nd. And I'm playing her today. I know this sounds insane, but um, I actually, I bit my lip like two days ago. And at first it wasn't that bad, but I don't know if it was sleeping on it in a funny way. Or maybe my front tooth was just sort of rubbing up against the front lip. Or who knows, maybe it's just, uh, I don't know, there's a fuse on these type of things. But the the my front upper lip is just killing me today. And it sounds like such a small thing, or, or at least it's annoying. But I, it really has kind of messed me up today. And it's just made everything just kind of miserable. And it wasn't until about like an hour ago, I was on the phone with my mother, and I was reminded of the fact that I actually have this like mouth-numbing gel or canker sore gel, or I don't know what you call it, but you know, you basically just rub it on your lip or something, and uh, and uh, it numbs things up. So I put that on, and uh, since I was going to be doing some talking here, I just put some of that on, and I don't know if you can hear a difference, but my mouth feels insane. So um, I may sound like I just got out of the dentist or something, or I may sound perfectly normal, but uh, that's what I'm dealing with. Um, the other thing, and I don't know, I guess it sounds like I'm falling apart. But the other thing I'm kind of contending with, or I just sort of was treating is, um, this may sound kind of gross, and um, I don't want it to sound gross. But uh, one thing that I've had kind of on a recurring basis, especially I feel like in the last like eight months or so, is a sty. Now, do you know what a sty is? It sounds awful, but it's basically like an eye pimple. And when I Google image search sty, what you see is some pretty atrocious things. And it's nothing like that. Um, but when I, it's like right on the lip, the lower, the lip of the lower lid of my left eye. And the first time I got one was like, I remember, I remember my girlfriend at the time, this was many years ago, this was maybe. I don't know, eight years ago or something like that. But how do I say this? I don't want to say she wasn't hygienic, but I'm just saying she was just kind of messy. And I got this sty, and I swear it was from like a dirty pillowcase or something that she kept on the bed. But the point of the story is that I remember my, I was working at a French restaurant at the time, and my French boss, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try to do his accent, but he basically told me, he had a name for it, some French name, I don't know, but he pointed it out. He's like, oh, you have a something. You know, he meant a sty. I don't know what he called it. But, um, you know, it's just like a little white dot. It's disgusting, but it was like pus, right? But it's like a little, a little, a little, little pimple on my eyelid, which is bizarre. It wasn't like red and festering and kind of gross. It's just a little, little something, you know? And uh, I'm trying to make this as endearing as possible. But he said, oh, you take some gold and you rub, a, you rub gold on it. And I knew that that was insane the minute he told it to me. But um, he was adamant um, that I should do that. I think part of it was that he was running a restaurant here and he didn't want one of his servers running around with a fucking pimple on his eyelid. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, but that was insane. But anyway, I don't remember it being a recurring thing. Um, but I do think that once you have a sty, it just it's easier to get them again. And I don't know if it's because the pore is enlarged or maybe once that bacteria gets introduced into the area, it is what it is. But I feel like right before I left for Taiwan, I started to get one. And and honestly, I think it actually gets exacerbated by like having a bad night's sleep, which is kind of weird. Like I always feel like when this starts to surface, it's after a real shitty night's sleep. So I don't know what that means. But I did notice there was like some redness and kind of like a bump on my eye. And I was like, ah, shit, well, that kind of sucks. But it wasn't a big deal. But I think like the first week or two that I was in Taiwan, I, uh, you know, it was kind of irritated. And, you know, it wasn't like unseemly. Like, first of all, 
you know, if you happen to be uh, getting these transmissions, you know, I may have talked about this in the past, but, you know, I'm actually a kind of a, I don't, it's not that I'm vain. Oh, I think it's just self-conscious. Like I'm just very hyper-conscious of how I look. I have a lot of insecurities about my physical appearance is probably the way to put it. But if I get a, like a pimple or something on my nose, I always kind of break out in my T-zone is what they call it. I always kind of break out on my nose. But if I get like a bad pimple, like it's really hard for me. Like it's really hard for me to go outside and I feel very self-conscious and I, yeah, you know, I just get very insecure. And so it's not as bad as like, oh, well, I, you know, I don't want to leave the house or anything. It's actually not that bad. Like I said, it's only once you kind of get up on it that you realize that there might be something there. But the point is, is I was, uh, uh, I was reminded by one of my peers who happened to notice it. They said, actually, they said that they ended up having, they had a sty at one point. They ended up having to get surgery, which I don't know what that looked like. That must have been atrocious. But uh, he said, you just have to put a hot compress on it, which is something that I had done in the past, which is like, I would just like boil some water and pour it on a dish rag and, and put it on my eye. But as I was, it, so I, I think it just kind of went away of its own accord while I was in Taiwan. But as soon as I got back and I've noticed in the last couple months, it has kind of recurred like two or three times. And this time what I've been doing, uh, this is insane that I'm talking about this. <laughs> this is not what I expected to talk about at all, but here we are. I take like a sock and I fill it with rice, not like, I don't fill it with rice, but I take like a cup of rice and I pour it in there and I sort of tie it off. So I have like a little bit of a pouch and I put it in the microwave for like 45 seconds and I have to let it cool down for a little bit. But the reason that that works better than just like pouring boiling water on a, a, a dishcloth or a dish rag or something like that is because that actually cools down way too fast because basically you need to get about 20 minutes of heat on it. And when I was doing the boiling water, I'm basically pouring it over this um, washcloth or dish rag or whatever, like every two minutes. And it's just not enough to get some good heat on it. But uh, this sort of sock of rice technique that I've been using, it holds heat very, very well. So, you know, it, it'll hold its heat for about 10 minutes and then it gets a little tepid and you got to throw it back in the microwave. But I find that when I apply this to my eye, it actually gets better. It's not perfect, but it kind of goes away of its own accord. But yeah, I've noticed, and I think what it is, is this kind of recurring shitty sleep that I get, but I find it kind of recurs. So I don't know if that means that I have to go to the doctor and like, I have to believe there has to be some kind of like antibiotic or something that they could put on your eye or treat the area so that it kind of kills whatever's kind of around there. Um, but yeah, man, I feel like I'm falling apart now that I'm talking about it. I bit my lip. I got a sty, apparently. And also, I finally went to the oral surgeon and um, scheduled a time to get my wisdom teeth pulled. I, Since I've been a kid, I mean, I, I went through the whole braces thing as a kid, and I think I even had like a, um, um, what do they call it? Like a retainer? Yeah, I had a retainer for a while, and I think I even had like a, one of those clear... Visalign things for a little bit. So I, I've had my fair share of time with the orthodontist. Um, but I have always felt that like dentists are kind of a, a bit of a racket, meaning I've heard anecdotal stories. And actually someone texted me about this recently. But, um, you know, people will go to the dentist and they're told that they have like 16 cavities and then they'll go to another dentist and they're like, no, nah, you're good. And it's like, I don't know how uh, opinions can differ that much, but I, I do think there's something about dentistry in general, which is they're kind of, I mean, like, I guess plastic surgeons are kind of like the used car salesmen of surgeons. And so I don't know what that makes dentists, but I'm just saying there's a spectrum of, um, uh, 
uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's money hungriness. I don't know what you call it necessarily. But there's like, uh, you know, cardiovascular surgeons, and then there's like oral surgeons or something. And there's like, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, trauma surgeons, and then there's dentists, which is, yeah, they all technically went to medical school. But uh, it's just a different, I find it's a different personality type that kind of goes into these fields. Um, but the point is, is that, yeah, I think dentists just in general can just kind of say, oh, we need to do X, Y, and Z. And most people who, become, maybe it's insurance or something like that, they just kind of say, okay. And that goes for like braces and that goes for getting your wisdom teeth pulled. But I've just never found, you know, the, the, the type of uh, alarm bells that they sound for you about what's going on in your mouth. I've just never found that you know, it's just, they they always kind of caution you that horrible things are on the horizon and they just never seem to, to service as far as I'm concerned. And I think it's true for a lot of people. For example, I encounter people all the time who never had their wisdom teeth pulled like yours truly. And I ask them if it's ever bothered them. And the most that I, I mean, some people have like impact in wisdom teeth and I get that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the vast majority of people um, who, yeah, their wisdom teeth come in. Maybe it crowds their mouth a little bit. But the only thing that's ever bothered me with is like, as they're kind of coming, maybe you have like a couple days of soreness a little bit, but you kind of know what's going on and it just kind of goes away. But I remember when I was like 15 or 16, the last one, one of the last times I probably saw my childhood dentist, is they were telling me, they saw the x-rays and like, hey, we got to schedule those uh, wisdom teeth to get pulled. And I was like, oh yeah. And he's like, yeah. Are they bothering you? And I was like, nope. And he's like, well, just sit, sit around and wait. You're gonna be, you're gonna be begging me to take those out in about three or four months. And I was like, okay, we'll see about that. So he's like, yeah, just on your way out, let's schedule it with the secretary or something like that. And I never did. And lo and behold, you know, twenty years goes by, and uh, really, other than like maybe every couple of years, a couple of days of soreness, knowing that my wisdom teeth are coming, and they've never caused me any problems. But for the fact that you know your wisdom teeth are very hard to clean. So it is the case, as I've had this like second round of returning to the dentist on a regular basis, which I didn't do for many years until I had my last job, um, uh, where I had sort of, a, I had dental plan was included. So I started going to the dentist again regularly. And admittedly, they had to f do a couple fillings to kind of get me back on track. But otherwise, my teeth are in great shape, except for these wisdom teeth that have a couple cavities. And uh, basically, they said, there's just there's no way we're going to fill cavities on your wisdom teeth. Let's just get them pulled. And I was like, all right. So basically, that was like on the, the first time I went to this dentist, and they were kind of taking inventory and kind of getting a sense of what was going on. He handed me this referral for the oral surgeon. And I was like, okay, well, as soon as I get home, I'll give this person a call. You know, I had all this momentum with like going to the dentist again and getting my mouth in order and all that sort of stuff. And I just never called. And I think part of it was, uh, you know, being a student, it's like, when are you going to get your wisdom teeth pulled? It's got to be during the holidays or something like that. And uh, now that I say that, I guess I, I don't really know what my excuse was, because there was certainly some downtime in between semesters when I could have done it. But uh, I, I don't know, I guess you want to spend that time doing other things. And I also think anecdotally, I was talking about this with my brother, which is my sister did get her wisdom teeth pulled at a reasonable time when... I don't know, she was maybe, I don't know, 14, 15, something like that. But I remember her being down for the count. And I don't even know if she had all four of them pulled, but I remember her being in bed in like in the dark for like a week in her room and my mother like bringing her like milkshakes so that she could get her caloric intake because she couldn't eat regular food. And, you know, it was just, it sounded like a, like a goddamn nightmare. And I was like, well, if that's what I have to go through, um, 
you know, especially as someone who's going to have to take care of myself, this is the other thing I was considering. And actually, now that I'm saying this, I feel like I've talked about this in the past, but I'm sorry that's a, a broken record with these, uh, with these sort of entries here, but I, yeah, and I, I'm certain I've talked about this, but I had a colonoscopy like years ago when I was like 22, um, which is very young for people who know what that is, but there was some extenuating circumstances. But the point is that they give you this kind of twilight gas for the procedure where you're really out of it. And I remember a condition of getting the treatment is that um, you have to be accompanied or chaperoned to the doctor's office. They will not release you unless uh, you're in the care of somebody else who's going to drive you home. And I think this was probably before ride shares like Uber and Lyft. But they basically needed to you know, release you into the hands of somebody else who could make sure that you got home safely. They wouldn't let you take a cab or anything like that. And I thought as someone who's kind of out here on their own, where I live, I just thought, you know, I just don't really have the support to kind of do it. To the point where I think my brother even joked, because he ha also has to get his wisdom and teeth pulled, uh, we sort of floated the idea of me flying out there and getting the procedure done together. Um, but, yeah, the point is is that I, I finally, <laughs> you know, I've had this referral on my fridge for like the last like two two and a half years or so. And I finally made the appointment. And uh, of course, it's like most things in life. And I'm sure this relates to other things in my life currently, like my thesis that I've been talking about. You know, you make such a mountain out of a molehill. And at the end of the day, it's just not a big deal. The thing that keeps us from looking at these things is just all our anxieties about it. But once we actually get down to it and we deal with the issue, not only are we relieved that we're finally getting down to it, we actually realize that it's not at all the ordeal or the whatever that we thought it was. Meaning I go to the oral surgeon, and actually what sucked is that I'm kind of in between my insurance coverage right now. I left my last job, and so I've had to get my own uh, health insurance and dental insurance. But of course, when I go to see the surgeon, they're like, oh, we actually don't like work with your dental provider. So I actually changed my insurance to see them, which means that it's sort of lapsed. And so actually for this month, I have no coverage It'll uh, for dental anyway. It'll be picking up in November. But... um. But uh, yeah, I go into the appointment. It's very simple. Um, I would say a little too simple. I think uh, offices like this, they handle these so many of these procedures that everything is comes kind of, I mean, operationalized isn't even the word. It's just very routine. It's like a conveyor belt. You know, uh, this guy probably just has like a network of dentists who just refer patients to him. And I'm sure there's some kind of kickback or something like that. But uh, I'm sure there's just people getting there, you know, just tons of people just having this procedure done. And you basically like walk in, you know, you, I, I speak to like a nurse for like five minutes and then she plays a video and leaves the room. It's like work orientation. I don't know if you ever had something like this or you start working in a new place, but they basically have like, this orientation video. And it's this like bizarre, like multi-part video explaining what wisdom teeth are. And it's got all these actors and it's like... I always, when I see those videos, whether it's the educational thing or or some type of orientation video, which by the way, well, actually, I'll, I'll sort of flag that. I always see the actors in it and I feel bad for them in a way. Because it's one thing when you see the actor who's doing the voice narration or he's like the protagonist of like the erectile dysfunction commercial. And you think, because it's always like a, you know, it's always a guy like in his mid 50s, um, usually a handsome guy. Um, but it's like, this person's been grinding away trying to be a professional actor their entire lives, and the biggest, most public-facing gig they've probably gotten is this commercial, because first of all, they can't take a known actor, 
right? They can't put a known actor in this erectile dysfunction commercial. They have to get a nobody. So you, you're guaranteed it's not going to be someone who's a successful actor. And this person, the most public-facing you know, acting gig they've ever gotten is they have to be the face of erectile dysfunction. So I always feel bad for that person. But the other thing, too, is I'm watching this orientation video, and it's this woman who's kind of wearing, like, 90s business uh, uh, attire. She's got, like, the uh, women's business suit on, and she's speaking, you know, very pointedly and very articulately about wisdom teeth and what they are. And I just felt so bad. I was like, this poor actress, like, auditioned for this, and who knows didn't who knows who didn't get the role and had to prepare for this, and it's just, I don't know, it's very bizarre. And I was even thinking, like, I wonder... You know, like, uh, I did acting as a young kid, and actually the thing I sort of thought of that flitted through my mind is I remember when I was a kid, I did, like, some voiceover work. I did a couple, like, voiceover commercials, um, and uh, one of them was, like, an orientation video. I remember being told that, and I didn't know what that meant, but it was like, I kept, they kept telling me, oh, it's an orientation video for Pizza Hut. And I still don't know, because I can't really remember what I was saying, but I have to believe that, you know, maybe for at least a couple years, I don't, or I don't know how quickly these things get turned over, probably not too fast. For all I know, it could have been like a decade, but I, my voice appeared in some type of Pizza Hut orientation video. Was it employee training orientation? Was it sexual harassment training orientation? Was it corporate level advertising? I don't know what it was, but my voice was somewhere. And, and, and the reason I bring this up is I never saw the finished product, but what I'm wondering is as artists, we like to have uh, an archive of our creative output, of our creative work. And you better believe, if I was in a national commercial, I would have wanted them to send me a copy. I actually did do a commercial. I did do a commercial. It was awful. When I was like, uh, I had to have been under 10, so maybe like eight or nine. But I did this commercial, and this was right around the time that the Macaulay Culkin movie, Richie Rich, came out. And so there was this commercial through like the local cable station or something. And they had some like, Teen, they had like a like a personality type. I don't know how to I don't know how to talk about this, but they had a woman who was like, she kind of looked like um, who's uh, Zach Morris's is it Kent, who's Zach Morris's girlfriend in Say by the Bell? What's her name? Is it Tiffany or is that the actress's name? But the point is, she kind of looked like that, you know, like denim jacket, kind of pigtail on one side, like just very kind of nineties kind of cool chick or what they you know what the sort of generic cool chick look. And I think she was kind of like the afternoon host for this, like, cable, local cable station, like, that afternoon block when all the kids are coming home from school, like, say by the Bell, like, maybe some of the animation shows. But she was just, like, some cable personality. I don't remember what she did, but her name was Kelly. Actually, two things. One, I think that is Zach Morris's girlfriend's name. I think it's Kelly and also this girl which is probably who they based her off of. Her name was Kelly. I don't know if that was her real name or her mascot slash character name. I don't know. But this is a very convoluted way of saying this girl Kelly and the local cable station had some kind of cross-promotional deal with BP gas stations, which I don't know where those are in the country, maybe like in the Midwest or something. I was living in Ohio at the time. But they did this like cross-promotional deal where Kelly, like if you went into this BP gas station and either filled up or bought like a 64-ounce soda or something like that, I don't know what it was, but you got this poster of Krista. Oh, that was her name. Kelly or Krista? I think it was Krista. I think it was Krista. I'm sorry. So you got this Krista poster, right? So I did this commercial where the writers had like based it off of Richie Rich, but that's who I played, but my character was Richie Big Bucks. You see what they did there? They sort of twisted on you. 
But I basically, this commercial was like shot like outside of this mansion somewhere in Ohio. And they had like a dozen adult actors who were like, uh, they had them cast and dressed as like butlers and cooks. And they were supposed to be like my staff. And the only thing I remember the commercial is I'm basically like walking in front of this mansion, like addressing the camera. And I say something like, hi, I'm Richie Big Bucks and I get what I want. And what I want, and I like turn to the staff, is like, I want that Krista poster now. And they all like scatter because they are, um, you know, live at the beck and call of uh, Richie Big Bucks or whatever. And then I'm sure there was some type of return shot where they handed me the poster and I probably give the camera a thumbs up or something like that. <laughs> but uh, two things. One, I remember when I did that commercial, uh, I was very excited about it. It was very cool. And I remember like, I think I like taped it off the TV when it was finally airing or something like that. But I also, the production company or the cable station, I don't know what it was, but they sent me a tape like kind of like a master tape, which was like, hey, maybe it's because I was a kid. I don't know if all actors do this, but they were like, hey, you were in this commercial and here is like a copy of the finished product so that you can like have it because that's kind of cool, right? And which which was kind of cool. <clears throat> I don't know what happened to it. Uh, I, I don't think any of my parents have it. I think I've asked about it. I don't think anyone has it anywhere. Um, um, but the thing that I do remember, I remember when the rap, when the, when the commercial was shot, it probably took like a couple hours in the afternoon somewhere. I remember my mom had driven me there and I remember when we were leaving, <laughs> when we were leaving, I'm literally getting in my mom's Toyota Privia, my mom's maroon Toyota Privia in the passenger seat and I like close the door and this like production assistant or somebody like runs up to the car kind of waving me down and she's holding, uh, She's holding this Krista poster, and she goes, hey, did you want to take this home? And I remember going, oh, that's cool. And I'm like, I'm good. And like, that was it. And admittedly, it wasn't really my thing. Like, what the hell do I want it for? But I remember the look of confusion that kind of came over her face. I mean, it wasn't like incredulousness, but it was just like, she came at me with this energy, which is very thoughtful of her. It's like, hey, I'm going to let this kid go home with an artifact from this very cool experience for him, right? Like, oh, he was in a commercial. Like, hey, let's give him this poster of the product that he was featuring. And I wanted no part of it. But there were two things. One, I, I didn't I, I didn't want it. But also, it was this other... When I, I sort of remember that moment in my life, I think because it was also an instance... That probably happened a million times, but the way our brains seem to work is we only remember, there's like one imprint, or maybe just a couple, but we only get these kind of like, it's like our brain is sort of in the living experience, like selecting these curated experiences that will stand in place of a thousand other instances that our brain just can't afford to record. So it will remember this one single instance that you'll sort of think about at various points in your life, and you won't really understand the meaning of it. It'll just be a recurring thought or a memory that you have. And it's only later in life where you get some context or some type of insight or some epiphany in therapy where you kind of see this for what it is, like why it sort of stuck out in the moment, why it was kind of meaningful enough for your brain to kind of file away as, quote, interesting. And it's only now, in hindsight, that as you're kind of going through the archive, you can kind of file it away where it really belongs, which is this instance of, I thought it would be a nuisance, or I thought it would be a bother for me to want it. And before, the, I, mean, I know that sounds kind of strange, but the, the reason that 
the reason that is kind of interesting for me is here is this person who's enthusiastically running up to me and offering me this thing that they ostensibly and in a, in a way kind of want me to take. I'm kind of literally taking it off their hands. But I thought it would be like presumptuous or rude for me to accept it, which I think just says something about like where my I don't know if it's self-esteem or whatever what was at that time but for me it was like i was actually doing like quote the right thing by saying that i didn't want it you know and as i'm saying this something else is kind of coming to mind which happened a couple years before that gosh people who listen to this i they must be bored to tears hearing the minutiae of my life but uh hey that's that's what we sign up for i suppose but i remember when i was like in probably first or second grade I remember, um, I always sort of frame it, or and this was kind of formed by my, the way my parents sort of, I think, talked about me even at the time. Like, your parents are very, uh, how do I say it? They're very uh, instrumental in forming the narratives that you have about yourself. And for some reason, I feel like it's coming from my mom, too. There was just this narrative that I had no friends, and when I look back on my life, I don't know that that's ever been true. I mean, I think that became kind of like an operating thing in my mind where I just thought for some reason there was something about me that was antithetical to friendship. But that's just not, it's just objectively not true. Meaning I was a very likable kid and I always had some friends. I mean, I admit I was a bit of a loner, but that's something else completely, I think. Um, um, but yeah, so I, I don't know, I could kind of get in the weeds on this, but I guess there's there's a th something that's coming to mind that uh, I may have discussed in the past, but I, I just had this operating thought that like, oh, I don't have any friends and people don't like me. And I remember having a moment with my mother where she also expressed incredulousness about, yeah, oh, why is it so hard for you to make friends? And now that I'm an adult, I think this is fucking insane. It's not like I was like... Um, you know, there was nothing abnormal about me physically that, that should have made me perfect, like withdrawn and insecure. And I was like a bright outgoing, like kind of talented kid who was like putting himself out there and doing theater. And like, it's not like I was reserved at all. So why would my mom just not say, Hey, you're not really hanging out with people. One, is that something that you want? But Hey, why don't you put yourself out there? Or why don't we do X or why don't we do Z? It was just kind of like a foregone conclusion, the way my mom kind of reflected her experience of me or the way she kind of framed this was like I didn't have any friends, which is very bizarre. However, I did have one friend, uh, female, I don't know if I should say her name, we'll call her S, but she was like a close friend of mine for a very finite period of time when I was a kid. And I remember, uh, actually this, it's actually interesting, recently I was talking about Stephen King and maybe we'll get to The Shining, which I actually watched the Kubrick version in the last week. But when I say that the first book that I read as a kid that really got me into reading was Misery, it couldn't have been the same trip, but it, it, it happens to relate to this childhood friend and her mother, which is I remember two instances. One, being at Barnes & Noble, the bookstore, when they first opened, which for some people, they may hear that and go, hey, what the fuck is that? Which is crazy because that means that Barnes & Noble has come and gone in my lifetime. And I have to, I think there there have to be some that are still around. But Barnes & Noble is basically a chain of bookstores. But I remember when they first kind of came around, which the way I remember it was like the early 90s, you know, either late 80s, early 90s or something like that. But I remember being at a Barnes & Noble and kind of looking at books. And I remember I was with my friend and her mother. And essentially they were kind of taking us on this outing. And I remember asking the mother for a recommendation 
like, oh, I, I, you know, I'm sure my mom gave me like 10 bucks or something to kind of take to the bookstore. And I was like looking for a recommendation. And I don't know why this mother picked it, but she recommended Misery by Stephen King, which is insane to me because I was probably seven or eight or something like that. And um, so I don't know why you would recommend that to a kid, but that's the book that I brought home. And I ended up reading it in like two days and loving it and uh, was a voracious reader ever since. But the other memory that stands out relating to this childhood friend and her mother is I remember going to the mall for some reason. I can't remember what it was, but we were at Toys R Us, which is another anachronism that many of you might not recognize, but because they are definitely closed now, but they were a huge chain of toy stores. And uh, um, they they did have like huge brick and mortar shops, but they were also in malls. Um, and I remember being at this one location of Toys R Us at the mall and we're kind of looking around and it was this, they were they were very, they were there very intentionally buying something for, I don't know, maybe a, a birthday party or something that they had to go to. I can't remember. Actually, the holidays might have been coming up. But we're kind of at this toy store and this very, I don't know how to word this, but this very kind of strange moment happens where I'm just kind of standing at the checkout counter with them and I'm just kind of looking around. And the mother looks at me and asks me, are you sure there isn't anything that you want or is there anything that you want to get while we're here or something like that? And I remember in that moment, I felt like I was being put in a very strange position, which is I didn't want anything. You know, like I understand like as kids sometimes like 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 teachers will say this, like if a kid has like a candy or something, they'll say, hey, did you bring enough for everybody? And the assumption I think is that on some level that like it's rude to bring candy, I mean, especially amongst young children. It's rude to have things because it puts kids in a position of envy where they feel bad that they don't have the same thing. And I, I don't know that that's true. Like, I think we just kind of assume that, assume that about kids. Like, I always think of this example, like in that moment where she was asking me if I wanted anything, it was, it, I was kind of in the same moment where I feel like there was a time by virtue of being a twin, my brother and I had, had birthdays all the time. I feel like there was a moment where we were hanging out with someone who happened to be my brother's friend, and I think, you know, more my brother's friend than mine, and they had gotten my brother something for their birthday, uh, and my brother was opening a gift, and I think they kind of looked at me and apologized and said, oh, I'm sorry we didn't get you anything, and I was like, I'm good. <laughs> like, that's fine. I understand the dynamic of the situation. It's not like I'm sitting here wallowing in the fact that I don't also have a gift, which, if we want to link it back to the Krista poster, that could also be tied up in my sense of not uh, needing things, so to speak, or something like that. But when the mother looks at me and says, do you want anything? I was, put in a, I was put in a weird position because on the one hand, I didn't want anything. But for some reason, I was also conditioned that like, like when you go to a friend's house and they offer you things, you accept. Like if they feed you or offer you a drink, you accept it. It's rude to decline. So I was immediately put in this position where I didn't want anything. But I also knew like, I did, like I thought she was like offering to buy me something and I didn't want to be rude. So I remember kind of frantically looking around and because we were standing by the counter, there were all these kind of like impulse purchases for like toys. And there was this like bin of like Godzilla toys and, you know, not very big. There were like these kind of hard plasticky things. But I just kind of looked around and frantically, gra I just grabbed one of the Godzilla things and I like pointed it. I looked at her like, well, here, maybe this. And now as a as an adult i think back to that moment and i see her face which 
clearly registered because I remember it, but I didn't really understand what it was at the time. But it was also her look of like expecting me to just say no and like move on. But here I was saying, oh, well, since you offered, like maybe buy this thing. And now she's in position where she's like, oh, I guess I got to buy this piece of garbage for this kid. <laughs> and I was like, so anyway, we like buy this thing. And I remember like, um, yeah, going home and doing this weird thing where like, as we're like, you know, they're taking me back to my house and uh, they're kind of walking me in the door or something like that. And my mother is like seated at the kitchen table. And I remember like sneaking up behind her a little bit and kind of scaring her with the toy. But what I was really doing was anticipating her response to me having this toy. Because I felt, I felt somehow intrinsically guilty about having this toy that... Like, I don't know, I, you know, maybe this is a forced connection, but that maybe on some level I had like wanted something or I don't, I don't know what it was, but there was something about having this toy that this parent had bought for me that was like embarrassing on some level. And I was preemptively anticipating my mother's reaction or what I, I thought her reaction to me having this thing might have been by like kind of making a joke about it and like scaring her with it. And she's like, well, and I, I, the only thing I remember is her kind of turning around and saying, well, what is that? And I was like, oh, well, you know, S's mom bought it for me. And of course, my mom did the thing, which was just kind of a civility between parents. It's like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. And the mother was like, oh, it's no big deal. And at the end of the day, I don't know how much it cost, maybe the equivalent of like $5, which like isn't a king's ransom. But that's always sort of stood out in my mind. And why are we talking about that? I have no idea. But this is the way the world works, I suppose. Anyway, I'm sure there's a beautiful point that this will all sum into because that's how this normally works. But I did mention seeing Stanley Kubrick's uh, The Shining. I think uh, we sort of arrived at this or this is meaningful for people who uh, happen to receive these transmissions. Because in previous iterations or recent iterations, I was talking about having seen uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and kind of reevaluating, you know, although it's a very slow movie, kind of actually like seeing like how economical it is in its storytelling it really doesn't give you more information that you need it actually gives you just enough despite its length it's not like an over bloated movie like some movies are just kind of bloated and over long uh, but this has just the essentials it's really just the pace that makes it long but I was sort of it's, well I guess this is connected speaking about Stephen King but I was saying you know Stephen King has always been very critical of Kubrick's version of The, of the Shining and I think I was also even watching Stanley Kubrick because I think I was only thinking about The Shining because I had seen a randomly recommended video from YouTube about Louis C.K., the comedian, talking about The Shining or Stanley Kubrick or something like that. And he had a great point, which I, you know, it's like, uh, there's some, and I know uh, Louis C.K. is a very controversial figure, and I'm not trying to dismiss that, but I also think it's objectively true that uh, he's just like a brilliant comedian. And I think in general, he's actually very underrated as like a, a filmmaker. He did a show, I think it's called Horace and Pete, uh, which I don't know that anybody really saw that. I remember download, downloading a torrent of it around the time that it came out. And it's this like eight or ten part, like one season of a television show that he totally self-produced and financed and like edited and wrote and cast. And it has like huge stars in it, like Steve Buscemi and um, uh, Edie Falco and it's just wild. It's just, but it's very, very interesting. And uh, so I just find him very inspiring as like a creative person. And just hearing him talk about movies at intervals, you just realize that he's just absolutely brilliant. 
But he was saying about Stephen King's thoughts on Kubrick's The Shining. He said, who gives a fuck what Stephen King thinks about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining? Like, Kubrick's The Shining is something else. It's true that it's, like, very different from the book. And uh, another thing that I also remember growing up was Stephen King actually, in collaboration with somebody else, I don't know who the director was, created his own TV miniseries remake or, like, redo of The Shining, which was, like, this three-part miniseries that ran on television and it was you know not very good um but it was his version of the shining and uh it had like all the things that were sort of taken out of the kubrick version like there's a very famous scene with the hedges how they kind of come alive and um it's much more focused on uh uh i can't remember a lot of characters names so i'll just say like jack nicholson's character jack is it jack yeah jack torrance or something like that um and also, very famously, like in the Kubrick version, spoiler alert, uh, Nicholson kind of dies in that, uh, uh, the maze, right? The hedge maze or something like that. Just kind of freezes out there, which I always thought was a very anticlimactic ending, honestly. I don't know what the solution would have been. But in the book, basically, the boiler is like set to max. Basically, yeah, the, the, the hotel like explodes or something like that. Um, and Jack sort of dies in there with all the ghosts and all that sort of stuff. Um, but basically Louis C.K. was saying like, who gives a fuck what Stephen King thinks about The Shining? Like Kubrick is like made a movie from the, uh, the hotel's perspective and all that sort of stuff. But he was very sort of evangelical about, uh, and very defensive of Kubrick's kind of version of The Shining, which is kind of weird for me because on the one hand, when I hear that, when I, on, on the one hand, I totally, I guess I'm, I'm forced to kind of reevaluate my sense of The Shining, which is I've honestly never really loved it. I've never really liked it. I mean, I've already, it's one of those things that like I watch it and I know I'm in the presence of art and it's, I'm sure it's very formative on one level and there's a lot of good things about it. But I've always found it like very dated, you know, like the costuming is just kind of weird. Like uh, rewatching it, it's more clear, but it's like um, uh, Scatman Crothers, you know, I forget his character's name, but he's like, uh, you know, he's like the, the, the caretaker of the Overlook who kind of shows um, Shelley Duvall and her sons and, and Danny's character around. And he also like shines or can speak uh, telepathically with, uh, with the young boy. Like it cuts to the shot of his apartment at one point and it's just very weird and very 70s. And then like the guy who like leads them around the hotel is like dressed in this like black bomber jacket and it's he looks insane and like there's just it's just something very dated about that movie and it could be the interior too and some of that is actually pretty timeless like the carpet and stuff but it's just it just some something kind of weird about it um i think you just kind of watch that movie and wait for the kind of the set piece moments like uh for me it's like uh danny riding his bike around the hotel um, not even really like the most famous one is when he like turns the corner and he like sees the girls but that's actually a like re-watching it I, I realized like that's actually a truncated version of what you see earlier is him just kind of bike or uh yeah biking through like the lobby and the kitchen area and the just I don't you can tell it's kind of edited but it's probably maybe inspired by the footage that they shot but it actually creates a mood of horror just based on the sound of the bicycle wheels going going over different textures, which is like out as he's biking over the like hardwood floors, it's like this very thunderous low rumble. But every time he goes over a piece of carpeting, it's like this punctuation. And every time the wheels hit the wood again, it's like this, it's just very ominous and it's very weird. It shouldn't be scary, but it is. But that's the type of like, you know, it's this, that's the kind of ineffable 
thing where like people I look at like reviews for movies now and movies just basically get ranked good or bad basically on how how closely they align with whatever the the, the, whatever the political or social zeitgeist is at the moment like that has become like the benchmark of good filmmaking where I, I can't say it doesn't exist right I'm not saying that I, like there's nothing special about me per se but you know it's those elements that make a filmmaker great it's not just like what is the film quote about in a capital sense it's how creatively and inspiringly can someone incorporate all the elements of film which includes the visual you know, uh, audio, these types of things. So, yes, I guess what I'm trying to say is, yeah, rewatch The Shining, and again, it's not great. It's the type of movie that you actually kind of just want to have on in the background and just kind of look up and see your favorite moments because it's just not that great, you know? I, w- I think I was, like, kind of crapping on Shelley Duvall, like, last time I was thinking about it, and although I guess a lot of her role in the movie is kind of weird... You know, when she really needs to bring it, you think, like, who does Scared better in a movie? Like, I I watched the exposition. I really am a nerd. I watched the exposition of Scream, the original Scream movie, which I probably saw in theaters, like, two or three times when it came out. But it was like I was watching the exposition, because really, who wants to watch that whole goddamn movie? But um, I think we all remember the beginning, which is, like, when Drew Barrymore, who at the time, it was a very kind of cool cameo. Because Drew Barrymore had like been gone for like everybody was like what the, what the hell happened to Drew Barrymore so that she kind of pops up and and only for a little bit or I should say actually in the the way the movie was advertised if I remember correctly was you would see the trailer and would have just assumed that Drew Barrymore was like a major character in the film but when you actually went to the theater and saw the movie Drew Barrymore gets a knife in her chest in like the first ten minutes of the movie which I think would have been very surprising for people kind of like Psycho or something like that <clears throat> but uh, what am I trying to say? Oh, I, maybe I'm just trying to think of like, you know, that, you know, most horror movies have, you know, a female that they've cast who can just kind of run through most of the film and scream and cry and that sort of stuff. And that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. But when you watch Shelley Duvall in The Shining, you think, wow, who's done it better? You know, there's like this whole protracted, very tense sequence where like she has the bat and like Jack and it's this entire sequence that tracks all the way across that huge lobby where he's just slowly walking after her and it's getting tenser and tenser and she's just completely discombobulated and can't make heads or tails of what's going on but realizes that her husband has like gone insane and he's like finally stalking her up the staircase but that whole sequence it's just like I don't know how you maintain that you know so I guess what I'm saying is her performance is actually pretty impressive especially that moment where She's actually in the bathroom, that very famous sequence where the axe is like coming through the door and he has the whole, here is Johnny. There's actually a really cool moment where she's kind of in the corner. It's a very, you know, very, very um, iconic shot, which actually when I see it now, for some reason, it's always kind of welded together in my mind with the movie Twister, which is there's a very kind of, you know, not that there's any real famous scenes from the movie Twister, which (laughs) unless you were around when it came out, you may... Uh, not remember it, which which actually now that I'm thinking about it is just a very one of those interesting artifacts of the 90s, which is any movie that came out in the 90s was a event, you know, like I remember Twister wasn't just like, a, you know, it wasn't just like a movie. It was like a cultural happening where it was like I remember the soundtrack. I remember having the soundtrack to Twister. You know, like releasing movies were were, were just, you know, even if it was just like a garbage movie, like a disaster flick like Twister, were these huge cultural events, you know? And, and yeah, obviously times have changed. But there's a very, 
again, not famous, but maybe a, a tentpole scene in Twister where um, the, the, the Twister is like coming through this drive-in and it's happening right at this scene where Jack, and, and they happen to be watching The Shining in the drive-in and this Twister coming through is happening right at the moment that Jack Nicholson is like axing his way through the bathroom door. But when this scene happens, I'm watching it, and as Jack Nichols, every time it cuts back to Shelley Duvall inside the bathroom as she's like kind of cowered in the corner, you know, watching this door kind of break away, there's this great moment where every time the thing falls, she has like another sort of recoiled scream where she can't, be- I mean, you can just see this look on her face, like she just can't, the panic fear of, she literally can't believe what is happening, which is her husband is like axing through the door. And she's in this weird liminal space between incredulousness and abject terror and like flight or fight. But there's this really, and I don't know if this was purposefully directed or just a smart choice on her part. You know, there's multiple blows where the axe is kind of chipping away at the door. But there's this moment where the axe, the head of the axe actually comes through the door and she sees it for the first time where it actually gets amped up even more, where she has this real, like it just gets taken to the next level. And as I was watching, I go, oh, that's actually an interesting moment. Like, I don't know if that registers for people or whether that was like purposefully directed that way. Like, hey, Shelly, when that axe handle, I want you to, once that thing actually comes through the door, I want you to really freak out. But that's exactly what she did. And I thought that was a very interesting moment. But again, I've always thought that that movie kind of ends weird. It basically is like Jack Nicholson, like chasing his son through the hedge maze and I don't know, the kid sneaks out somehow and he's just kind of lost in there. And it has this really kind of bizarre, it just sort of smash cuts from him like like plopping down in the snow. It smash cuts from like the middle of the night to like the day and there's a weird kind of boing sound. And it's just Jack Nicholson and he's like frozen in spot, but he's like looking up. And this is like a very comic, like he looks silly. It doesn't look horrifying or scary. It just looks silly. And I've always thought, I don't know if that's just how it registers for me, but I just thought it's just a weird way to end this kind of protracted horror movie where it's just, I always thought he kind of died in like a, a comic way. Like he doesn't look menacing. He just looks kind of like a, like a I don't know, like a goofball, um, which is very weird. And then, yeah, it, like the final thing is like this shot where, you know, Jack Nicholson is in the photo uh, from, I don't know, maybe like 60 years ago at the Overlook Hotel. So it's like he's always been there or something like that. Um, but another thing, too, is when you watch that movie, I do remember this documentary that came out, like, I don't know when, but you know, I feel like I probably watched it like 10 years ago or something. But it's called Room 237, or maybe 217. I think actually the room is 217 in the book, and I think it's 237 in the movie. So I think the documentary is called you know Room 237. But I think it lays out like various interpretations that people have of Kubrick's The Shining. And the only one that stands out in my mind, because it's the one I was sort of kind of looking for evidence of as I was watching it this time, is this idea that it's a very, basically a, a large allegory for, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the genocide of the Native Americans. And this is kind of interesting, actually, considering what I'm studying in school if you've been listening, which is like, uh, you know, the Spanish encounter and conquest of the Caribbean and now uh, Mesoamerica. And a a couple things that sort of stood out to me, and actually, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think the other theory was that The Shining is one protracted confession of Stanley Kubrick uh, admitting that he uh, helped uh, NASA uh, forge the moon landing or something like that. And the only thing I remember is I think there's a moment where Danny Torrance is wearing like 
you know, uh, a moon or a kind of a spaceship kind of t-shirt or something like that. But uh, to this idea that it's really an allegory for like the genocide of the Native Americans, there are a couple moments where these kind of points that don't really get elaborated on get brought out, which is there's a moment as they're being led around the hotel where the guy in the crazy black bomber jacket and the hair that goes up to the ninth floor says something like, yeah, oh, it's uh, this was built on an old Indian burial ground. And that's never mentioned, it's just never addressed later in the movie, but if you know Stephen King's output, and it may even have been the, I don't know if it was the next novel he did, but Pet Cemetery, which is, uh, wow, two things are coming to mind. Pet Cemetery is, uh, I, I have read it, and I don't remember it being great, and uh, I've certainly seen the movie, and I don't remember it being a great movie generally, but what I do remember about the movie A Pet Cemetery is it has one of the scariest monsters or creatures that I've ever seen in a movie. And uh, I'll try to, th I don't know what the third would be, but basically I have this kind of like canon of like the, the scariest monsters in movies. And I think about it because I wrote this song years ago that I, it was really just kind of a half big song idea. But I, it, it was basically called The Best Monsters in Film. And one of the lyrics from the chorus was like, uh, uh, I can't leave her now, she's haunting me still. Like the best monsters in film, yada, yada, yada. But I was basically equating this idea that like there is a, um, uh, a roster of like creatures or monsters in movies that are just, for me, the epitome of terror. And one of them, we've talked about The Exorcist, is Reagan or Linda Blair's character from The Exorcist. That is, I think, has to be at the top of the list. It's the scariest creature of all time. The second one would be in Pet Cemetery. There's a character, I think her name is Zelda, but she's like the historical sister of the mother of the main protagonist, or I'm sorry, the wife of the main protagonist. The wife in the film, her sister, she recounts the story kind of, you know, a third into the film about her sister who had maybe spinal meningitis or something like, I don't know what she had, but she had this disease that made her bedridden and she had to care for her sister, but her sister was so horrible to look at that it was traumatizing for her. And the may, I, I don't know if it would be that horrific if I saw it now, but it was absolutely mortifying to me as a kid. And that was just a movie that I just absolutely could not watch. And then actually, this is this is where the third one comes in. The third one is actually not Stephen King's version of The Shining. Oh, I'm sorry, not Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining, but Stephen King's miniseries version of The Shining of The Woman in the Bathtub. When you watch the Kubrick version, it's actually not scary. So like, for example, I mentioned watching the movie Doctor Sleep recently, which is the sequel to The Shining, which is very strange because on the one hand, it's Stephen King's book and they make the film but by even though Stephen King's made for TV version exists the original film version is so iconic this is technically a sequel to The Shining as a franchise and as a brand and I don't know why this feels counterintuitive but I was actually shocked at how much deference and reference it made to the original film which I don't know why I should be because it's technically a sequel to the film but to me, there's something so incongruous, or maybe there's just something so, I don't know, encapsulated or cohesive or maybe just untouchable 
about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining that it seems bizarre that anyone would venture a sequel. Or maybe I just assumed on some level that although this is technically a sequel to The Shining in that it's a continuation of the story that we all know, but it's somehow either out of respect or deference or whatever, credibility on some level, would have to distance itself from the original movie. But it's it was actually bizarre to me to watch it and see that they, like, one, the entire ending of the film takes place in, like, a very realistic and, to me, very accurate reconstruction of the Overlook Hotel or the sets that they used for the original movie, which is, like, very, very impressive. But as I was watching... Kubrick's The Shining, I had completely forgotten about this aspect, which is fucking crazy, actually, which is in Doctor Sleep, they actually have two actors who play Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson. Now, of course, technically they're playing, I think, is it Wendy? Yeah. Give me the bat, Wendy. So it's Wendy and Jack Torrance. Technically, they're playing those characters. But because there's no fucking way Shelley Duvall, who actually, it's, I don't know if you want to say it's sad, but there is, you know... I don't know that life has been kind to her post her cinematic career. Um, I don't want to presume that she's unhappy. I don't know anything about her. But if you see Shelley Duvall now, it seems like there's been some mental health challenges or something like that. And there's no fucking way Jack Nicholson is coming on for a sequel to The Shining. Well, I guess technically he can't because his character's dead. But even if he even if he could, even as a ghost, there's no fucking way that he's going to touch this movie. But they have these flashback sequences where they have, and actually they, they do this really stupid and kind of predictable thing where they have uh, the character of Jack Torrance play the bartender to Danny Torrance. And the same way that when Jack Nelson goes to the Overlook bar or so, you know, that, that sort of abandoned ballroom and all of a sudden there's a bartender behind the bar. Now that's Jack Nicholson's character or Jack Torrance or whatever you want to think about it as. But they literally have actors who are supposed to look like Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson. And I just thought that that was so fucking bizarre. Like, why would you actually go in on that concept? Because it's so jarring to watch that. Because no one who's watching that movie is... I guess what I'm saying is, is it's just very... It's a very strange creative choice to me. Or maybe it just seemed inevitable to me that if you were going to make a sequel to The Shining, you would have to do something so divergent from the original. Because the last thing you would ever want to do is invoke a classic movie like Kubrick. Does that make sense? That movie is so iconic and so revered, you would almost feel compelled to go a completely different direction or like divorce yourself from it so as not to remind people of how good or how much reverence they have for the original. It's like if I was dating a girl who used to date like, I don't know, George Clooney, the last thing I would ever do in like a date night is ask her to sit down and watch like Ocean's Eleven with me because then we both just have to sit there and she gets to be reminded about how great George Clooney is and then every time she looks at her left, it's just me stuffing my face with popcorn. You know what I mean? And like getting up to use the bathroom and maybe flashlighting or something where it's like, why in a million years would I ever do the thing to invoke the thing that's probably a thousand times better than what you're watching now? Like, just from a creative standpoint. So, it, yeah, it just seemed weird to me. I guess, yeah, from a narrative standpoint for continuity, I guess you kind of have to do that. But, yeah, it just seemed bizarre to me that they would even invoke this original film at all. Um, so, yeah, so there's that. <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, and what else is going on? Oh, I don't know. Oh, what were we talking about? We were talking about getting my wisdom teeth pulled and that not being as bad as I thought it was. I actually had this moment earlier today. I was speaking with my 
I think it was I think it was earlier today. I was speaking with my brother, and he was kind of like, "What do you got going on?" And I was actually very happy to hear from him because I had been working on my. I've mentioned this thesis that I'm writing that I'm supposed to be working on for two semesters, and basically haven't looked at in like three months. And so, on the one hand, I'm 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 attending to it on a semi regular basis, and I'm feeling good about that. And so I'm 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 so reasonably optimistic that it'll get done, but I'm also it's also one of those things that as you really pick it up, you really realize, oh shit, it really, it's, you know, it's going to be hard. It's, it's, it's not going to be easy. I really am. There, I'm sure there will be sleepless nights as the, as the date for all these things approaches, especially because so many other assignments are coming up for other classes. It's, it's going to be difficult, but I was very happy to speak with my brother and he was kind of asking me what's on the docket for the rest of your day and recording uh, this entry was one of them. Uh, but why am I bringing that up? Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I was just, oh, I guess right before this, I was continuing to do some work on my thesis, and it is a bit like getting your wisdom teeth pulled, which is, uh, there's a lot of buildup, but actually, once I'm in the flow of it, once I start, I'm actually really happy to do it, you know? Even though I'm not convinced it will be a successful paper, I, I have to admit, it, you know, the, the sort of constituent components or the elements of it are things that I enjoy, are topics that I enjoy, and at least desperately are, are kind of I don't know how to describe it except for sandboxes that I like to play in. You know, I was saying like my, uh, at least one part of the paper is, or a foundational part of the paper is this kind of theory of first principles of science that a professor of mine had kind of articulated. And so as I'm kind of getting those materials together, I'm, I'm sort of reminded, oh yeah, I find this stuff very interesting and I like it and it sort of deepens my understanding of it. So uh, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure how motivating that will be for me, but it's just a reminder that, you know, the things that we, kind of make a big deal about once we actually get down to work are actually not that big of a deal. Oh, and by the way, there are things that you actually enjoy. So really the only thing kind of standing in the way of getting them done or getting back to them on a regular basis is just my anxiety about them. <clears throat> and as I'm talking, I'm realizing my, my lip is like starting to really hurt. So thankfully we only have a couple minutes left here. Not really sure how to wrap up. <clears throat> Um, maybe just to say, um, I admit when I record these entries, again, I don't know, uh, who these go out to or who hears them, but, um, I admit that although my enthusiasm to re record them hasn't been through the roof, um, I'm sort of looking at it as like an investment in the future and also just like the filling of a commitment, you know? So, um, I'm always happy to have done it and maybe whether it's getting your wisdom teeth pulled um, or working on your thesis, there's probably a lot of things in life that we may not have all the enthusiasm in the world for. But if we're just, you know, if we just chip away at them, right? If we just commit to sitting down for an hour a week and talking into a microphone, or, uh, you know, chipping away at our thesis, or, I don't know, just making that call, following up on the uh, referral for the oral surgeon and just making the appointment, uh, I don't know. We get to look up at a future date and kind of see the success of our our little little time investments, right? So presumably, uh, I'm actually surprised to see how, uh, since returning to this, how many we've done in what feels like such a short amount of time. Um, maybe like like maybe like twelve or something like that, which is is pretty cool. Um, and so yeah, uh, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is although I haven't necessarily looked forward to these, which with uh, um, an inexhaustible source of enthusiasm. I'm always happy to have done them. And again, like today, we sit down and who knows where the hell we're going to go. 
Um, but uh, I think some interesting stuff came up. I got to reminisce about my uh, childhood acting days and, uh, and uh, yeah, kind of explore my psyche. And honestly, it feels like therapy at the end of the day. And can you imagine if this is how I do this? Can you imagine what my poor therapist thinks having to hear these stories all the time? I think I'll just have to comfort myself with the knowledge that they can dry their tears on the checks. Whereas, unfortunately, you have to come up with your own reasons while you listen to this. But um, I do thank you for your attention, and uh, I will look forward to doing this next week. Until then, thank you for your time, thank you for listening, and ciao for now. <laughs>